Hey guys, it's Brad here with 10 and 20. I just wanted to give you a quick update before we jump into this week's episode. So I just wanted to let you know this episode was recorded in advance. Sarah and I recorded a whole bunch of episodes over our winter break. So we plan on maintaining our release schedule going forward. This is of course coming out in the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic. But thankfully, we we should be able to maintain our release schedule um, through the near future. So stick with us. Keep coming back every other Tuesday. If you're looking for other things to do, other education resources in the meantime, I recommend you head to boft.org slash hidden dash stories. So hidden stories is a project that Sarah put together with the Battle of Franklin Trust curator, Joanna, and they do this deep dive into the artifacts in our collection. Sarah asked some great questions. It's just a really good resource for those of us who are trying to educate children from home or just want to learn about history yourselves. Another thing that you could do is you could follow along with our Facebook live tours of Carter House and Carnton. We have released one already of Carter House. We've done a live tour of the Carnton Visitor Center and Museum. And this Thursday, that's April 23rd at 11 a.m. Central Time, we will be doing a live tour led by historian Eric A. Jacobson of Carnton. So tune in on the Carnton Facebook page to catch that. You can ask questions live. And of course, you can watch these videos afterwards as well. But live is a little bit more fun. One last thing. If you go to our online store, which is store.boft.org, there's great books and resources. We're still shipping those out. And if you order between now and the end of April 2020, you can use the code FREESHIP04. So free ship zero four, and you can get free shipping uh, on your orders. So check that out. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I know these are, are difficult and trying times. Please stay safe and healthy. And we're going to jump into this week's episode. to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And I'm Brad. This week on the podcast, we are interviewing Chiquita Patterson, founder of United Street Tours, a company that gives tours of downtown Nashville, and we're going to be discussing the Nashville sit-in. Chiquita, I'd love to just start by having you talk a little bit about who you are and, and what your background in the field of history is. Yeah, so my name is Chiquita Patterson, and my background is not history. And so that's like one of the biggest misconceptions about me and like what I, the products that I put out into the world. So I'm a storyteller. I'm not a historian. And so with that, what I do is basically work very closely with historians and uh, interpret the history that they find. And so I interpret the history that historians find and turn those turn that into stories. When I first started this company, um, I was trying to be a historian and it sucked. And so then I realized that, hey, like I'm trying to be something that I'm not. And so, like, instead of giving a tour where I was telling a bunch of facts and dates and figures, I start pulling the individual stories 
out of those facts and dates and figures and created transformational experiences for people. I like that a lot. When Sarah and I first started doing this podcast a couple of years ago, we made the decision that we weren't going to refer to ourselves as historians. We're going to, we were going to call ourselves historical enthusiasts because yes. we, we like the right. story as well. Yes, it's a story that we go for too. See, and that's a story that really like connects with people on a deeper level as well. So I last year got to take one of your tours of downtown Nashville and the fo- it was great. It was really good. And um, uh, the focus of quite a bit of it was the Nashville sit-in movement. And while we were doing a little bit of research for this interview, I realized that we are just a couple of days away from the, uh, at the time of this recording, we we're a couple of days away from the 60th anniversary of the first uh, large-scale Nashville sit-in movement, which I thought was kind of cool. So we wanted to have you on to talk about that movement a little bit. Oh, yeah. So the sit-in movement will always have a special place in my heart because, you know, I actually had an opportunity to sit with some of the civil rights leaders and talk about their stories. But the thing that really blew my mind about the civil rights movement when I started doing this research is that I thought the civil rights movement was pretty much the city of movement, but it was so dynamic. It was so many different things. And so each city pretty much had a movement based on like what was unique to that city from, uh, I took a tour down in St. Augustine, Florida, right? And so they talked about the weight-in movement. And then when you come to Nashville, you hear about the city-in movement. And so it's very unique that Nashville chose the sit-in movement and chose sit-ins because um, those students and those civil rights leaders believed that the department stores were doing uh, the biggest injustice to African-Americans and that we could shop at the downtown stores like Woolworths and um, buy things, but we couldn't sit down and have lunch at the lunch counter, right? And so people actually ask me, well, Shakita, why didn't the black why didn't black people want to sit in the black section? There was no black section. Okay. It was whites only. And so they felt like if we can shop and spend our money at these stores, then absolutely we should be able to sit and have a hamburger and eat. So that was the reason that the lunch counters in particular were selected. Right. And Nashville, the city movement in Nashville, like you were saying, each city had their own movement. Nashville's was inspired or, or followed a similar movement in was it greensboro north carolina mm-hmm. so greensboro started first yes and then nashville started a few a few weeks after greensboro north carolina and who were the major players that started this in movement in nashville uh, so some of the most uh, notable people that pe- names that people recognize so congressman john lewis and he, congressman john lewis he writes about he's wrote about and talk about his experiences a lot and so he wrote a, a series of books that when i was still in education my students it was a required read for my students called march and in several of his texts and interviews he talks about when he actually sat in at woolworths on fifth uh upstairs and he could hear you know his friends being beat up and horrible things happening being horrible things happening to them and so he is like one of the key people that we talk about on the tour uh, because his story is so remarkable uh and another person that people recognize another name is diane nash and Diane Nash is pretty much one of those people who uh, became the chairperson for the student movement in Nashville. And I asked several of the civil rights leaders, you know, why was she the chairperson? Why was she chosen uh, as a female, African-American female, as the chairperson in the movement that was very male-dominated? 
And uh, I got a lot of different stories <laughs> about why she was chosen. Um, one of the civil rights leaders told me she was chosen, one, because she was an English major and she spoke very well. And so if they wanted their spokesperson to be someone who could narrate and talk about uh, everything that was going on in not only a calm tone, but in an eloquent way. And so another civil rights leader said they chose Diane Nash because uh, when the men would uh, be would be put in leadership positions, they would become big men on campus and kind of lose focus on what, um, what the movement was all about, by all the attention that they were getting. So Diane Nash was able to, to stay focused and stay organized throughout the entire thing. Okay, so we've mentioned a couple figures involved, and we've mentioned by name the sit-in movement, but what actually happened? Like, what was the series of events that led to it, and what played out? Yeah, so the sit-in movement uh, kicked off with James Lawson basically came to Nashville and began to recruit students under the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King to uh, protest. And so James Lawson, he was the initiator behind creating this movement in Nashville. And so one of my good friends, her name is Gloria McKissick, civil rights leader at Nashville, Tennessee, worked in education for a very long time, still very active here in the city. Um, She talked about her recruitment process, and she said she was sitting in the cafeteria in college, and a group of students just came up to her and said, hey, um, I really want to um, tell you what's going on. We're, we're going to start this movement, start protesting for equality. We want you to come to one of the meetings and come to one of the trainings to see what it's all about. And Gloria McKenzie was one of those students who said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and go see what it's about, and ended up being involved in the civil rights movement very heavily. And so once students would get invited to uh, the training, the first part of training was pretty much learning theory. And so they learned the theory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, and uh, Jesus Christ, right? Not because this was a, a big religious movement, but because these were examples of people who really, really um, horrible things have happened to, but they continue to show love and continue to forgive, continue to be nonviolent through it all because the the premise of the movement was nonviolence. No matter what happened to you, you do not fight back. You do not yell back, right? You do not um, hold anger in your heart. You forgive easily and you create change in your community. And so uh, they also did a lot of role playing during the training. Uh, so going in, saying mean things to each other, roughing each other up and things like that. Because a lot of people say, you know, if that was me, I would have handled it this way or I would have handled, handled it that way. But you never know how you going to handle a situation until you're actually in that situation and so role playing was a very big part of that and so from there after the training process the students moved forward with sitting in in the downtown nashville uh, lunch counters and it was very a very organized and strategic uh, movement and so the training process was organized and strategic their separation into those stores was organized and strategic and so when i was growing up i thought you know Civil rights leaders just went around and said, all right, guys, who all wants to participate in this movement, right? And a bunch of kids raise their hand and say, me, 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 right? And then they run and go participate in this movement. But it was really a very selective process. And so when I, you know, started doing this research and understanding, you know, how selective and how intentional everything was, it, it, it was really a remarkable, a remarkable thing. Yeah, no, that is really cool. I did not know all that information. So that's awesome. So they didn't just wing it. They went in very planned out, meticulously planned out, and, and, and knew what they were trying to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And see, if you look at it, imagine if they did wing it, right? So if there was no training involved, everybody that's out there doing the best that they can without fighting back. Somebody somewhere probably would have messed it up for everybody, right? (laughs) And so that messing it up could have meant that more lives were were lost, right? That messing it up could have meant, like, this was a national movement, that it messed up for everyone nationally. And so that that, uh, time before actually sitting in was very important to planning and organize because this was not just like oh this is a nashville thing this was a national movement that nobody in nashville wanted to mess up right (laughs) okay so they start this the the movement begins and and so they've recruited these kids and trained them and uh, and so they start uh, actually going into these lunch counters and sitting down to order food what happens yeah, so um, just like all over the nation, they were denied. They were told to leave. Eventually, they were beat up by uh, white supremacist groups or history calls them segregationists. Um, and they just kept being resilient and kept going back and kept going back and demanding change. And so eventually, things began to escalate in Nashville, and there was a bombing uh, in North Nashville. One of the civil rights leaders today was D. Alexander Luby, uh, the lawyer for the students here in Nashville. And, you know, Z. Alexander Luby, his legacy goes far beyond Nashville. He he represented so many people who were important to the civil rights movement. And so pretty much the segregationist bombed his house, uh, but he survived and that triggered a uh, march. And so the students said they were, they were going to respond to this attack um, via a nonviolent silent march. And so they marched from the North Nashville community to downtown Nashville. And at the time, Mayor Ben West, who knew that they were coming, he met them at the steps and Diane Nash approached him and asked him a very important question. Um, Paraphrasing, asked him, you know, do you think it's wrong to discriminate against us because of the color of our skin? You know, and he said he had presented him basically with an opportunity to be on the right side of history, as Congressman John Lewis would say. And so in that instance, he said, yeah, you know, I think I think what's going on is wrong. And that's when things began to shift in Nashville. And so the next day, the um, the newspaper reported in big, bold letters, the mayor said integrate. <laughs> and so and so in that snapshot, things began to change. People became open to conversations about integration. I tell people all the time, just like when new movies come out, like 12 Years a Slave or um, uh, Harriet and things like that, you know, that sparks conversation and different communities and so like when major events happen it sparks conversation and people begin to talk about it uh the students continue to protest until things begin to change and eventually those lunch counters desegregated okay so the mayor the mayor makes this de- declaration that uh segregation in the lunch counters should end but i'm sure at that point it wasn't just a happily ever after moment so oh, no. what what was accomplished and then what was yet to be accomplished to fight hard for what they wanted to do well at one point 
you know, a position was put to the students to have a segregated space and the students denied it. So there were uh, different negotiations that went on and the students just kept pushing and kept sitting in until they got full uh, integration. And then from there, I know the story mostly ends with, okay, then the lunch counters desegregated. But from there, the students continue to desegregate every aspect or several aspects of Nashville from movie theaters to participating in the Freedom Ride. Were there other cities then that took what Nashville did here and did that in their own hometowns? Yeah, I think so. I think everybody looked to everyone to see, you know, what was a successful movement and what could be duplicated and replicated. And so I think Nashville played a very important part in the in the movement as far as like being the first city in the South to desegregate our lunch counters. So we were uh we were a city at the time that people could look to and say, Hey, this is how we can become organized, just like people today with different movements today, look to the civil rights movement and say, how can I make a movement or create a movement similar to that in an effective way? So what was it about Nashville that made this a place that was able to undergo these change? Was it because people were more receptive to it? Was it because the movement was stronger or had better leaders? You know, I get that question uh, quite often. And this is what I can say about Nashville. And this is what I've heard like some of the civil rights leaders say about Nashville. Nashville um, is pretty, mm, I would say Nashville on a scale of like progression of cities in the South, Nashville is probably in the top of like which cities are most progressive when it comes to like change and things like that. And so I would say like Nashville, things that Nashville had on its side is Nashville and those students were very organized and persistent and never gave up. So what about if somebody wants to learn more about these topics? What do you suggest that they do? Yeah, so if somebody wants to learn more about uh, the movement in Nashville, one, the first thing that I recommend is taking one of our civil rights tours, uh, which gives you, which starts you in the right place with research, right? And so our tours, we have a one-hour tour, just like an overview of the civil rights movement in Nashville. And so the second place that I would recommend stopping by is the Nashville uh, civil rights room in the downtown Nashville library. And so in the library, they have um, different, they have pictures, audio, video, books, literally a room dedicated to the civil rights movement. They have so much history on the movement in Nashville. And so those two places, it would be a great start for anybody looking to learn more about the civil rights movement. Yeah, when I went on your tour last year, that was the first time I had visited that room. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm, I, I like that we have a place like this in our public library that anybody can go to learn more about their city and what happened here. Oh, yeah. And I love that it's like free and open to the public. So no matter how old you are, you can go, you can have a good time. And when I first started this tour company, like that was what I consider my first office because I would just sit in that room for hours and just like so they have a, a mock lunch counter and you and it's in its um a timeline it's written in the timeline and so like you can go from like the the top of the movement all the way to when the movement was coming to an end and just see some of the events on there that happened some of those key events and some of those key figures and just watch the interviews of, of those mothers doing school desegregation and what they said so it's an awesome space i recommend um that everybody go to the nashville civil rights room so once again your company is united street tours and uh, where can where can people find more information about you? 
Yeah, my company is United Street Tours. We do Black History Civil Rights Tours in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out more about us at unitedstreettours.com. You can contact us by hitting that Contact Us button and shooting us an email. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to sit down with us or have a phone call with us and tell us more about this important moment in our uh, in our local history. Yeah, we very much enjoyed it. We learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners do too. Thanks, friends. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to Chiquita for appearing on the podcast. If you want to find out more about her touring company, the link to the company's website page is in our description. And always, if you enjoy our podcast, subscribe to us and leave us a review. Head over to boft.org slash podcast, where you can purchase one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts or sign up for a newsletter and follow us on Instagram at 10 and 20 podcast. That's T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. And you can keep up with what we are up to. Thank you so much for listening.